Welcome to the Global Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast. Please like and subscribe. Also visit us on social media, um, on Facebook, that's Global Seventh-day Adventist Church, or um, we also have Instagram, Goebbels Youth. Please check us out there. Also um, on our website, GoebbelsSDAChurch.org. Um, please uh, join and join us Sabbath mornings at uh, 9.30 a.m. for Sabbath school and 10 a.m. for church. What a way to begin worship. Hmm? The finest with which a hymn affords is when the soul under the line accords. Thank you for that ministry of music. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to the fountain that we may see Jesus and hear the word of God which He has spoken for our inspiration, edification, and encouragement through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Aspiration. All things a prophecy contain of some things higher still. A close relation all sustain, a place and purpose fill. Our life on earth is incomplete, for larger life we plead. Who made the heart aspiring beat will answer to its need. Beyond the bound of time and space, a fairer world we see. Within the soul of man, we trace the sign and prophecy. We trust the Lord in faith serene, a ladder he hath given. The lower rounds on earth are seen, a higher reach heaven aspiration there are or is I should say one verb that crystallizes the aspirations of this generation and that one verb is complete How do people express this aspiration? You often hear them say, I yearn for completeness. I yearn for wholeness. I yearn for resolution. I yearn for the wheel to complete a full circle. I say it's tragic when a friend or relative suddenly dies. For we remember that life is a sheet of paper white whereon each one of us will write his line or two and then comes night. And what remains? What remains are conversations 
unfinished. What remains are projects, incomplete. What remains are hopes unfulfilled. And we are grief-stricken. But that grief is a restless and somewhat fruitless struggle to restore a sense of completeness. In the Jewish society of Jesus' day, there was a number that epitomized this sense of completion. And that number is seven. Bara Elohim, God created. And that creative process ended after seven days. And the verdict was, it was very good. Jacob, what a rascal he was, but he worked for seven years to earn the love of his life, Rachel. And Pharaoh had a dream in which he saw seven fat cows and seven thin cows. And the Jewish menorah candlestick had seven lights. And when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, his army marched around the city seven times on the seventh day. So the number seven is completeness. Well, if the number seven is the perfect number, then, then the number six is just a bit painfully short of seven. And so at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, there are only six flagons of water for ritual purification. Not quite perfect. And in today's scripture, we read of a woman who has five husbands and a companion who is not her husband. And if that is a piece of salacious gossip, then think again, because the details of the story are all vital if we are to understand it. So we're talking about a woman who has five husbands and one uneasy partner. That makes six. Not quite perfect. But to understand the true meaning of the story, we have to fold back the pages of history. Lord Byron once made the observation that Hatred is the madness of the soul. And the Samaritans and the Jews had hated each other with a passion for centuries. Samaria was actually a very large province in the north part of Palestine. and was filled with different ethnic groups, each of which had their own particular types of religion, religious cults, in fact. This had been the case for centuries. In fact, as far back as the 8th century, 
when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the intervening years, the Samaritans had developed an unequal but very bitter hatred against the Jews. Because after all, the Samaritans worshipped their gods on Mount Gerizim. While the Jews, well, their center of worship was in the temple in Jerusalem, just 50 miles south. So what does all this mean? Well, in 2 Kings 17, there is an account of the Assyrian invasion. And guess what? It lists five foreign people groups that worshipped idols in Samaria. So now the story is beginning to make sense. For we can see the Samaritan's woman's five husbands as representing the five false gods the Samaritans had worshipped. And the question is, well, we can account for the five husbands, but who is this would-be sixth husband? Again, the history of Jesus' times informs us that it was at the time of Herod the Great, who was a pawn on the chessboard of the Roman power. And Herod had a dream to make a brand new Roman capital in Samaria. It would bypass Sitcha and it would be called Sebast, which happened to be the Greek name for the emperor Caesar Augustus. So we have the situation now where Herod brings in and fills the base with 6,000 new settlers who bring with them their own form of worship. And the historian adds a rather interesting observation, and that is, unlike the Assyrians, the Samaritans were prohibited to intermarry with these new settlers. And now we begin to understand Jesus' words when he, she's, he said to the woman, and the one you now have is not your husband. So he must have been one of these new settlers that the Samaritans were forbidden to marry. So this woman represents the Samaritan people, and Jesus is pointing out that the Samaritans are historically and spiritually devoted to the five false gods and now politically subjected to the Roman power. These are the six husbands. But there's something else going on here. Because at this point, we realize that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are engaged in a courtship ritual. A courtship ritual, yes. A courtship ritual which is deeply rooted in the fundamental stories of the Jewish faith. Because remember that Isaac and Jacob and Moses all met their future life companions while loitering at a well and having a conversation. 
And in each of these patriarchal stories, a man comes to a well in a foreign country, meets a fair maiden, and asks for a drink. And the maiden goes back to fetch her people. They return to the well, approve of the relationship, and they witness a wedding. So this is a conventional scene. It's a bit like the cartoon of a mouse. He comes to the edge of a cliff. He falls over, and we see him running in midair, and he stops, and then continues to plummet to the earth, stretches out his hand, grabs the side of the cliff, and climbs back up. So we know how the story is going to end. And so a scene between a man and a woman at a well is just like this. And we think we know it's, how it's going to end. It's going to end in marriage. But is Jesus going to marry this low-living woman in Sitcha? Well, yes and no. He is not going to abandon his ministry and settle down in obscurity in a three-bedroom condo in Sitcha. No. He's not going to fall for the invitation whims of this woman who said to him, I'm available, darling, and I want you to know I'm very experienced. No, no, no. The meaning of this courtship ritual is plain. That Jesus is the Samaritan woman's seventh husband. The Assyrians couldn't save her. Neither could the Roman power. But Jesus can and did. Because Jesus is that woman's wholeness completeness and the answer to her and her people's struggle and search for meaning and the answer to their unquenchable thirst. And that brings us to the matter of the water in the well. Well, in the beginning of the story, the woman comes to the well with a pitcher, but has no water. Jesus comes to the well with no pitcher, but he's never thirsty. And from here develops a conversation that shows exactly who Jesus is and why he is her and our Savior. But the important thing to realize is to note the language. Because when the woman comes to the well, she refers to a cistern that contains still and stagnant water. But when Jesus talks about water, he's talking about a gushing an overflowing fountain, a geyser, 
that shoots water into the air. And do you know that there's an Old Testament passage that forms a background to this interchange? For in Jeremiah chapter 2, Thus saith the Lord, what wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that hold no water. So Israel has two problems. They've forsaken the Lord, and they've dug their own wells. And the woman has two problems with water. When she comes to the well and draws it, it's bad water. And no matter how many times she returns to the well and draws the water, she remains thirsty. And it's just like her situation with her husband's. Because the five husbands have not nourished her, and the sixth would-be husband is unable to quench her thirst. But keep in focus the full religious and political context of the story. For Jesus is saying the Samaritan's worship of false gods has been like a stagnant cistern, poisonous and debilitating to their whole life. And meanwhile, their subjection to Rome is leaving them perpetually thirsty, unable to break out of the cycle of hand-to-mouth dependence that occupies their entire existence. And like the woman, they are humiliated on a daily basis. But here is Jesus in the desert of desire, offering water that never runs out and completeness that quenches all thirst. So what do these first 18 verses of John chapter 4 really mean? That Jesus is the seventh husband who delivers Samaria from the false worship of Assyria, the five husbands and the political subjection to the sixth husband, the Roman prayer. And he brings a wonderful fountain of living water that exposes the squalor of idolatry and breaks the daily dependence on the oppressor. This story, I say, this story is about the religious and political transformation all people can find in Christ. So the conversation now turns to the subject of correct worship. And perhaps this subject, this conversation, is pertinent for our generation. Because many of us have come here today to meet God in this place. And perhaps we are saying to ourselves, well, we may not be all that sure who we've come to worship and what difference it really makes. 
But what we do know is that for sure, as anything, we worship well. And that's exactly what the woman is saying. She said to Jesus, come and look at my tradition. We've got great buildings on Mount Gerizim, fantastic music, an amazing spectacle, touching sermons, droves of people, carefully planned, performed sacraments, and we've got plenty of money. And Jesus says to her, maybe so. But this is not about you. This is about God. And you know that God chose the Jews, so if you're going to be reconciled with God, you have to be reconciled with the Jews, like it or not. And one day, maybe soon, all these buildings and traditions and their beauty and splendor will be swept away. And it won't be about Samaria, and it won't be about Jerusalem, and it won't be about the global Seventh-day Adventist church. It'll just be about God. And you'll be face to face with God, spirit, and truth. That's all. And the woman is beginning to get the hang of it. And she says, yes, I know someone is coming who will make all these things happen one day. And Jesus stares her in the face and he says, here, now, me, face to face with God. Here, now, me. It's awesome. And what happens? At that very moment, the disciples burst in and spoil everything. And they ruin the sacred moment of spirit and truth. Of course, they are horrified to see what they think Jesus is up to. And at this point in the story, brings us to the moment of transition. When we move from a revelation to consequences. When we move from it as discussion as to who Jesus is, to the difference he makes in human life. And the disciples are the four guys. Oh, yes. They have returned from their ministry in Sitchar, bursting with uh, success that they have been able to leave uh, that polluted city of Sitchar with food and without defining themselves. It's like the feeling you have when you're in a foreign country, not familiar with the language, and you are successful in buying food that you are sent to purchase in an unknown city, and you return and wait for a standing ovation. But turn your eyes a moment away from the disciples, and look what the woman does. She has met Jesus. He's made a big difference in her life. 
and she returns to her village in Sichar and she leaves her water jar behind. Why? Because that water jar represents her economic suppression of having to fetch water for survival. That water represents her daily humiliation of having to come to the well at noonday because her lifestyle has made her an outcast. That water jar is a daily moment-by-moment -moment reminder that she is just trash. But she's met Jesus. And he made a big difference. And she immediately becomes an evangelist. How? She uses the two words that appear in the beginning of the story that led the disciples to their faith. Come, see. And she returns to her village, gives her testimony, and many come to believe in Jesus. And what is most astonishing is that Jesus, the Jew, is invited by the Samaritans to spend two days with them, which means he must eat their food, which is something he said he would not do at the beginning of the story. What is this story telling us? Yes, Jesus makes a difference. Because now the enmity between the Samaritan and the Jews has ended. The dividing wall of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews is over. The wall has come tumbling down. And what a devastating contrast. Because the woman returns to her village with faith, with truth, with testimony, with transformation and a reconciliation on an epic scale in contrast with the disciples who return from Sitcha with just food. But Jesus is merciful to his male disciples. He neither humiliates nor repudiates their ministry. For after all, He's just transformed the woman's view of what it is to drink. And now he will transform the disciples' notion of what it means to eat. Living water enabled the woman and her people to break free from centuries of spiritual confusion and the, the present reality of political oppression. Now unknown food, food to eat that you do not know about, offers the disciples a chance to share Christ's glory. Of course, the disciples by now 
have left their agrarian lifestyle to follow Jesus. And they know two things about food. They know that the plowing and the tilling and the sowing is mighty hard work. And they also know that despite all that hard work, they've got to wait for the fruit until the harvest time. So they know two things about food. It's hard work and you've got to wait for it. And I ask myself the question. These, if you think about it, are what one might regard as the two problems with salvation. It's hard work. And you've got to wait for it. But, as Jesus did with the woman, Jesus sweeps the disciples two problems away. It's not hard work because Jesus has done all the hard labor. And all the disciples have to do is to reap. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor, and they don't have to wait because the fields are ripe and the harvest is now. Look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. So in a single stroke, Jesus has taken away all the stands between us and salvation. It's not hard work because Jesus has done all the hard labor. I would not work my soul to save for that the Lord has done, but I would work like any slave for the love of God's dear son. And we don't have to wait for it because the harvest is now. Mercy. So, this is a story about completion. We end where we began. But it's not about our completeness. It's about God's completeness in Christ. For Jesus is the seventh husband who delivers the Samaritans from a religious perversion and political oppression. Jesus is the fountain of life who delivers the sinner from daily humiliation and the marginalized from perpetual thirst. Jesus is the true place of encounter that brings God and his people face to face. Jesus is the reconciling grace that makes enemies into friends. Jesus offers a way of life that lifts the labor of salvation from our shoulders and brings its joy to us now. Jesus calls this well of salvation living water and this abundant harvest unknown food. And when we read the story,
we discover that our unquenchable thirst is over and our gnawing hunger is gone. When we read the story, we know, we realize that we, in Christ, have met God face to face. And like the Samaritans, we can say, we have heard and we know for ourselves that he is truly the Savior of the world and ours. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 400 and... 90. Thank you. This is both a narrative and a wonderful prayer. And I want you to remain seated as Jay sings for us these three narrative verses. And we will join him in each refrain, which is a prayer, our prayer. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting soul of mine. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Like the woman at the well I was seeking For things that could not satisfy And then I heard my Savior speaking Draw from my well that never shall run dry Fill my cup, Lord I lift it up, Lord Come and quench this thirsting of mine Bread of heaven Feed me till I want no Fill my cup, fill it up, up and, and make, make me whole. There are millions in this world who are craving the pleasure earthly things afford. But none can match the wondrous treasure that I find in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Fill me up, cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. 
Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. So, my children, if the things this world gave you leave hungers that won't pass away, my blessed Lord will come and save you if you kneel to him and humbly pray. Allegro, pianissimo, softly. Fill, Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench the thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore in the name of the Father who's provided for us the well of salvation. In the name of the Son from whose riven side a fountain of water flows to be dispensed by the gracious Holy Spirit for every need of every moment of every day. Amen.